Welcome back to part two of a special edition of the ATP podcast on, quite simply, the greatest. Yes, we have taken it upon ourselves to try, probably in vain, to decide who is the greatest of them all. I'm Seb Lozier, and back with me is former WTA player Jill Krabus and tennis journalist and author of biographies on both Roger Federer and Novak Djokovic, Chris Bowers. Jill, Chris, welcome back both. Are we ready to nail this today? We're ready to nail it. As much as we ever can. This is a debate <laughs> that will go on and on and on, and so it should, actually. So last week, in a nutshell, we looked at the success factor, the numbers and how they stack up across the key contenders, shall we call them, and the substance. So some of the intangibles like consistency, dominance, mentality, uh, also a bit on the different surfaces and, and the hot potato that is comparing women's success with men's success. More of that today, I'm sure. This week, we are going to delve into a little more of style and celebrity and how much they play into this debate, how certain athletes come to just transcend the sport that they play. Again, we'll be hearing from uh, some other voices too. And let's start with two time Grand Slam finalist and currently the tournament director at the Rolex Paris Masters, Cédric Piolin. If you start to say like, uh, yes, but my personal opinion uh, is I prefer Novak uh, or I prefer Roger, then it's very subjective. So, uh, and, and of course, it's a personal opinion, so so then it's a different um, discussion. So, game styles. Chris, does this come down to who you most just want to sit down and watch and pay a ticket for? Well, you see, I, I slightly take issue with Cedric Pearlene there. I, I think, yeah, of course, whether you like a player is subjective, but there is clearly an aestheticism about certain players that enhance their appeal. I mean, it's very difficult to work out how you quantify that. But when you have a whole load of tennis fans saying, oh, yeah, for me, Federer is the greatest. I know he hasn't won as much as Nadal and Djokovic, but, oh, he's just so beautiful to watch. Now, it's a personal opinion, but it does mean something. And and people loved watching Federer. People loved watching Nastasi back in the 70s. Throughout the years, there's been, you know, in some of the great rivalries, people have had favourites, not because of the personality of the, of the player, but because of the style that they play with. Some players have charismatic games. And I think the aestheticism does count for something. And it's not purely subjective. It's the quantifying of it that's subjective. But uh, I, I definitely think that, you know, it's, it's like watching in any other sport. There are certain players who are more elegant to watch. There are certain teams, certain soccer teams that just play beautiful, fluent uh, football. Um, that happens, I think, in every sport. And I think tennis is not immune from that. And it makes it very attractive, especially when you have a contrast in styles, one of which may be more functional and another which may be more aesthetically pleasing. Jill, how, how important are fluency and aesthetics to you? I, I think the fact that it's a topic that we have to discuss means that there's some there's some validity to it for sure because you you ask so, so many people and the reason that it is a debate is because there's a reason why people loved watching the beauty of the way how fluid fluid 
Federer was. I mean, he's he's definitely one that made it, like Chris said, made made it look too easy, almost to a fault, I think, because all of a sudden a lot of people felt like they could do what he could do, and he, and a lot of people can't because he made it look so easy. But the fact that we're even discussing it means that yes, it's. I think it's a, a huge factor, and I think people absolutely loved watching him play because of how beautiful he was to watch. People love watching Nadal play because of his grit and his physicality. And people love watching Djokovic play because of his simplicity of how he was able to just grind people down. And I do feel like actually Djokovic's game has changed a little bit in the last few years where he's made some adaptations to that. But I think, yes, I think it is an important factor. And I think the way, because of the way Federer has played, I think he's gotten a lot of kids to want to play that way, to, to want a one-handed backhand, to, you know, the, the way he holds his head for three seconds longer. I mean, you see kids doing that all the time. And to me, to me, that's huge the way he's been able to impact the younger generation in that way. Let's just take one shot and arguably the most important one, the serve. Um, some might say the forehand or the backhand, but let's just take the serve. And let's go move away from just the big three who tend to dominate this debate. If we're talking about the serve, who's the greatest of all time? I would probably want Serena's serve. <laughs> yep. That would be one of the ones I'd want on the women's side. I mean, the player for me who has the best male serve in recent years never got to a Grand Slam final, and that was John Isner. Uh, for me, it was just a beautiful stuff. People looked at his height and thought, oh, yeah, he's just making use of his height. Yeah, he did. But he also had the most beautiful service motion. In terms of the, the people we look to, I would say Sampras. Sampras did something which was unusual at the time, and now everybody does. He put his ball toss in the same position every time so that it made the serve a lot harder to read as the returner. Um, and yet his serve, he could rely on it, especially on quicker surfaces so often. But where you're right to look at the serve, Seb, is that the serve is probably the single most influential shot in, in terms of if the serve is on, most players feel confident about the rest of their game. I mean, the, the best example of that was Becker. If, if Becker's first serve percentage was over 60%, the, the chances are he'd win the match, not because his serve was so big, although it was big, but because the rest of his game would work. Once it dropped below 55%, he had much less confidence in his ground strokes and would struggle to, uh, to win even basic matches. And who comes out on top if we talk about adaptability in their style? Like who, I'm going to just pull out Nadal here as someone who I think as he's got older, has learned to go forward more, maybe try and finish points off a bit quicker, He's just an exceptional volleyer. He's a fantastic smasher. So he he can do that. Is is that important? I, I'm I'm talking about serve volley because it's one of my favourite things. And Chris has had the misfortune of playing with me once, and he knows how bad I am at serve volleying. But I will continue to do it because I love it. Um, and it's kind of gone out of the game, and it probably shouldn't feature in a debate about the greatest of all time. But it goes to the point of being able to change your game if you need to who has been best at doing that when they've when the chips are down adaptation i mean i would put nadal top because i think nadal just learns nadal just absorbs and and changes i actually think agassi should have a fair bit of credit and i would think we should give a nod to all those players who've won roland garros and wimbledon in the same year because that change of surfaces 
Now, Federer and Nadal have both done it. What was remarkable was the way Borg did it. I think he did it four times in six years. It was just ridiculous the way he was able to win in Paris and Wimbledon. That is changing your game. But what was interesting, Borg never won in, in Australia or at the US Open. He got to a couple of US Open finals. Uh, I think adaptation is very important. And actually, Seb, you are in good company there because uh, Timothy Galway, the guy that wrote The Inner Game of Tennis back in the mid-70s, he said, everyone should enjoy the volley. It's the most enjoyable shot in tennis. So there you go. Jill, how important is power? Power. Can I touch on the adaptation? Yeah, because go. my mind went actually in a different direction. Um, I agree with Chris. I think one of the toughest challenges is switching from clay to grass and such a short period of time. And so to be able to make that adaptation is is incredibly huge, especially with how short the grass season is, because um, you have to be able to adapt immediately. But my mind went actually within matches, is being able to have to quickly do it within a match. Um, and that's where my brain went, is if you're struggling all of a sudden with the style of an opponent or you're not playing well or you're struggling with their style of game, having to adapt immediately within that particular match. And I think for me, that's one of the toughest um, answers to be able to come up with one player because I feel like I've seen it so often where – all Federer and all Djokovic have been able to do that. And a lot of times Serena as well, she is all, always in the mix because she has to adapt and come up. And the way they can sometimes flip a switch and then all of a sudden just be like not feeling comfortable and then all of a sudden being able to figure things out in a way where they come up with those wins. Um, to me, it's hard to pick one name because I think they all do it phenomenally well. As far as power, I mean, definitely on the women's side, Serena changed that com completely. I think she forced a lot of players to have to be able to up their game as far as being able to come with some more pace and be able to adapt with the power that she brought. I think on the men's side, it's been pretty even, I think. I think, you know, Nadal brought that big power, that physical part of the game, um, but the way that Djokovic and Federer adapted to that, that's, that's what I mean. They all had to lift their level. They all forced each other to lift their level. But I don't think anyone in the men's game necessarily overpowered the other one. I think um, that's where you see the incredible adaptability of all these players to be able to how quickly they are to adapt to being able to get better, faster, stronger has been just skyrocketing, I think, especially in the last 10, 15 years. It's interesting because when you talk about power, most of our discussion on the men is centered around Federer Nadal Djokovic. I would actually say that power wasn't a big part of their game. Sampras was far more powerful than uh, any of Federer Nadal Djokovic. Nadal, perhaps the heaviness of the topspin on clay, I think, is a form of power game. But that's the only aspect of those three that I would I would put down to power. I think we also we haven't talked much about Martina Navratilova and what she did in the 80s, her focus on diet, her focus on gym work that took women's tennis to a different level to the point where it, at, at her peak in the mid 80s, 
there were lots of tennis fans who were saying, oh, she's she spoiled the game. She's made it very unfeminine. Now, you look at videos now. You go to YouTube and look at Navrasilova. That, to me, is beautiful tennis. It, it's, it's wonderful. She just happened to lift the professionalism of women's tennis to a new level, to a level that everybody now takes for granted. So I, I think we should give her the acknowledgement of what she did by taking the sport to somewhere that it hadn't been before and is now taken for granted. Great serve volley game as well. So I'm just going to yes, throw absolutely. that in there. Um, if, if she redefined the game in a way, is it fair to say that Serena did as well? It, it, more recently, Jill, in terms of the power and the physicality that she brought to the women's tour, it certainly seemed that a lot of women, to, in order to compete with her, had to hit the gym a lot more than they were. She's definitely up there. And I've spoken to her a few times about this, like how much that she she changed the game. And um, she was really one of the first ones, Navratilova, that got into the whole fitness and got very meticulous about all the stuff. We see it with Djokovic now of how pinpoint accuracy is with every single thing he does. And I feel like Navratilova had that a little while ago. And she was the one that focused so much on getting herself in the best shape possible, diet, nutrition. And because that's the one thing that as an athlete, you have complete control over, especially in, in, in an individual sport. Um, you, you have control over your serve, but also everything outside the court is, is the one thing that you have complete control over to be the most professional and get yourself in the most physical and the best shape possible in everything that you can do to be prepared and ready. And that helps you give that confidence when you walk on the court. So yes, I definitely think she was one of the pioneers in that category. Serena and the big three certainly oozed fluency, stroke play and power. Let's throw another few names into the mix, though, courtesy of doubles player Jackson Withrow. But first, he's actually talking about a player that we have just mentioned, former French player Jeremy Shardy, uh, who does also, I think, start on the big three, too. The thing I like, they are completely different style, all of them. That's why so, I think they kept excelling so much. Yeah, because they, they, they had to improve. Yeah. Because when something someone finds a solution, the other one tries yeah. to find something else. And, uh, and yeah, after it depends who do you like, which uh, game style you like, which personality you like. Uh, I know all of them. They are like great people, great champion. But I love Pete Sampras too. He was my idol <laughs> when he was. I think you love everybody. He was my idol when I was young, and uh, why well, is not the best player in the whole time? I don't know. <laughs> I'm a big server. I love the serve, so I'm gonna go with Andy. I okay. love Andy. He's an Omaha or Lincoln guy, but um, you know, I got to uh, briefly have some time with him. So he's um, nice. He's a he's a big uh, influence from uh, back in the day. I used to wear the spiked up hair with the visor and <laughs> tried to emulate his serve motion but uh has yeah. he given you any advice no yeah. i think he tries to keep it for himself yeah and okay. um you know i think it's uh it's always tough you know to, i think he's got his hand everywhere and tough to get him um involved but uh you know he's he's been a huge icon for me with tennis chris Andy Roddick, um, clearly a, a personal favourite um, and a huge, obviously huge game. And actually, how important is it to just have personal favourites and to throw them into the mix here? Yeah, I think what Jackson Withrow was saying there is is make makes a distinction between 
the greatest of all time, which Andy Roddick isn't, let's be honest about that, but somebody who can be very, very inspiring um, for any individual player. Now, yeah, Roddick uh, had a very, very difficult task. He was the leading American of a new generation that came after that phenomenal generation of Courier, Sampras, Agassi, uh, Todd Martin, Michael Chang. Uh, and then Roddick led the new generation. He was never going to achieve as much. He didn't have as much support, um, but he did really well and was clearly a massive inspiration um, to, well, to various people, uh, not uh, not just to Jackson Withrow. Um, it, it's a remarkable uh, body of work that he has amassed. And that is every bit as valid as the greatest of all time. It's just that no one could seriously make an argument that Roddick, with one major, uh, short time as world number one, one Davis Cup title, you can't make a case that he's greatest of all time. Jill? How, how important are... Are personal favourites, and and how how difficult is it when you're when you're trying to define greatness to to leave them out almost? Yeah, I I think it's difficult, and I think you know inspiration is the first word that came to me as well that Chris just said. So I think it's you know we all put Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, Serena, whoever at the top that we think is the greatest, but it is about who inspires you as a kid to helps you that helps you pick up that racket. I mean. Again, my thoughts as Chris is talking, answering the questions, start going to God. I remember so reading so many about these athletes and who inspired them. I mean, you could, they, there were so many that wanted to be like Del Potro, there were so many that wanted to be like Marcella Rios. I mean, there were so many names that you could throw out there. So, in the end, it is about what's very personal to you, and it's about who got that motivation for you to want to keep going and playing and who was the inspiration for you. So I, I think that's that's a big factor. It's, it can be so different for so many players. Yeah, we, we all have our favourites. And it's fair to say that the three of us probably have a little bit more insight into the tour. So we probably have more favourites than everyone else because <laughs> we get to talk to so many of these players, which is a lucky position for us to be in. Um, but it's fair to say, isn't it, that only a select few attain the kind of celebrity that makes them icons. Here's recently retired Spanish player Pablo Andujar, and before him, Ivan Lubcic, and first, Paul Harhus. If you talk about greatest, um, is it, do you take in account the impact that somebody has towards tennis? Then I think Federer has done more. For me, the greatest is the one who had the, the biggest impact on the game. And in basketball, that's Michael Jordan. In football, we have you know Maradona and these guys, and they, they must they are they are not the most successful, but they have they made the biggest impact on the game. Tiger Woods, you know, in golf, and for me, that's Roger. So if we say who changed maybe the game, well, maybe Bjorn Borg changed the game because he created idols in tennis. There were no idols. He he was like a little bit like a like a superstar, yeah. blonde, so good looking. Well, that's a little I bit are, what. So, yeah. and then the commercial stuff starts. Blah blah blah. No. So, I think yeah, I would go with with Rafa, but I think it's a very very difficult one. Jill, when we talk about mass appeal, and we talk about mass appeal in the same way as we talk about. You know, Lionel Messi, Michael Jordan, Tiger Woods. How important is marketability in this 
goat greatest of all time debate? I give quite a bit of emphasis to to this category because it's what we it's that word we've used a few times already the transcending the sport it's because it it gets people around the world not only interested in the person and the character but it gets people flocking to the sport of tennis if you're able to transcend just just that sport and i and i think it's really important because it gets people watching gets people interested gets people coming to events to the venues just to see how amazing the, these players are because it is so different when you're able to watch them in person and get close up and it, it makes you appreciate the very talent and the the quickness and the the strength that they all have as individuals so and for me it's not only about marketability it's about having that impact on on the sport in general and how these players are able to give back to the sport as well, which I think is really at the heart of a lot of these players, what they're what they're passionate about. Because you hear them all the time how they're able to connect with their fans, how much they, you know, they can, when they go back to their home country, um, you know, how much of an imp- impact they, they actually see when they go back to their home country. So for me, that's, that's a really big factor. And, and for you, Chris, in this era of social media as well? I think it's really important when we're talking about the greatest to see who actually goes beyond tennis and sometimes beyond sport. And, you know, there's one name we haven't mentioned yet, and that's Billie Jean King, because, you know, uh, if you write a history of the 20th century, nothing to do with sport, she will be worth a mention with her role as one of the feminist icons of the second half of the 20th century. And does that make her a great tennis player or does is she just a great person who used tennis as her springboard? I mean, her numbers are impressive. They're nowhere near as impressive as Martina Navratilova's or Serena Williams's. But, you know, she was one of the greats of tennis and transcended by using tennis to make a real statement for the development of women's sport and women's rights, certainly in the developed world. And I think to that extent, if you're going to give a great weight to transcendence and social impact, then King has got to be absolutely up there. And in fact, I would say that the three greatest female players would be Serena Williams, Martina Navratilova, and Billie Jean King. And all of them, because they transcended tennis, as well as posting really impressive numbers within the sport. How big is social impact? Yeah, it's very important. In particular, the Williams sisters. They brought people into tennis who weren't there before. I mean, I remember around 2000, you wandered around New York, around the New York, around the US Open, and there would be people who you would not have associated with the tennis public who were suddenly interested. And I was aware of, wow, this is how you expand your base. You get to people who'd never previously thought that tennis was for them. And I look back to someone like Althea Gibson in the 50s and Arthur Ashe in the 70s, neither of whom I would say would be, you know, contenders for the greatest of all time. But they were just what they achieved, uh, you know, in, in the social context of what tennis was, 
was phenomenal. And therefore, the Williams sisters took it a lot further. I think Navratilova, a big part of her appeal was, well, part of it was that she defected from the um, Soviet bloc at a time when the Cold War was in the consciousness of most people in the developed world, certainly the, t the tennis clientele. And the other thing is that she was very open about her sexual orientation, which I think helped push the acceptability of uh, homosexuality at a time when it was still struggling for acceptance. Jill, you must have seen at first hand what Serena and Venus did for the women's game in particular. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it, it was incredible. And I think just the knowing their stories now a little bit more about, you know, where they grew up and we now have a little bit more background over the last couple decades about their stories and, and how they grew up. But I think yeah, just for sure, both of them had a massive impact of how younger African Americans thought that it was possible to be able to have the success that they have had. I mean, Coco Goff talks about it all the time, how much of idols they were to her. And look at her now, like she has been able to let herself shine and be open. And she's so well-spoken. And now she's at such a young age having that impact on the younger generation that are coming up now and she's still very young herself but how much that you can see that line just keeps going and that did for Coco Goff in particular start with the Williams sisters 100% and how much impact that they have had but again it's being able to tap into a society that weren't necessarily tennis fans to begin with but follow them and watch them and want to be like them and and that has a huge impact and I think you see that geographically as well. I mean, Djokovic is massive in Serbia. He is Mr. Serbia. Um, Nishikori, you'd never count him as part of the greatest, but he was massive in Asia, as was Michael Chang, even though he's American of... And Li Na. Uh, uh, Li Na in China. Uh, you mentioned Marcelo Rios earlier. He was massive in Chile. Del Potro was massive in Argentina. And we heard pa Pablo Andujar a few minutes ago talking about, well, he was comparing Borg with um, Nadal. Well, what's the common factor? They were both superb clay quarters. Borg was the king of clay until, well, possibly Musta, but certainly until Nadal came along. Now, in a country dominated by clay, Nadal is head and shoulders above Federer and Djokovic simply because that's the currency that they go by. Indeed. Chris, we've left it late, but let's start talking about your algorithm. Now, I th I think Jill's ready. She's I I am not sure Jill whether your whether your your mind is fried too much to start talking about Chris's algorithm. But much of this discussion has used your notes from a paper you presented at a History of Tennis conference in in Wimbledon earlier this year. We'll put a link to that paper in the podcast description on Apple and Spotify. And that paper includes reference to your calculations and weightings that you give to certain things. So Talk us through it. Just talk us through it brief, briefly, if you can. Um, OK, I mean, uh, the first thing to say is that this was a bit of fun. OK, it's not supposed to be taken too seriously. But if you're going to say the greatest of all time depends on more factors than just numerical success, you've got to then define what those other factors are and give them weighting. And, and basically, I, I gave 40% to numerical achievement, mostly Grand Slam singles titles, but a bit extra for world number one ranking, for doubles titles, for team titles. Um, I then looked at economic pulling power 
And by and large, I use the Forbes Sports Rich List, certainly for players since 1990. The Forbes is an American magazine that does a, a list of um, rich people, um, their earnings. And in sport, that's prize money and endorsements or salary for team players and endorsements. Um, I did a little bit for aestheticism. I only gave it 5% because it's so difficult to quantify. Uh, and I did a, a chunk for transcendence and social impact. And that was my algorithm. And I just fed the data of all the leading players into it. And I explain it all in the in the paper. As I said, it was a bit of fun. And the results were very close to the point where if you tweak the criteria a little bit, you will get different results. So um, no one should feel offended if their favourite player was not top of my list. It was just, you know, in fact... The, there's there's a criticism that's been made of some people, I think legitimately, that I put too much weight on economic pulling power and transcendence and social impact. And if you give that slightly less and you give numerical success slightly more, then you get slightly different results. But all I would say in my defence is that I wrote the criteria first and then fed the data in. Well, as we're now going to all name our top fives, I guess the burning question, Chris, is are you happy with the top five that you're theory produced? Uh, yes, I am in the sense that I developed the criteria, I gave them the weighting and I fed the data in and therefore I need to stand by the results. I would acknowledge though that, I mean, basically Federer came top, Serena Williams second, Navratilova third, Djokovic fourth and Nadal fifth, but they were all within, I think, six percentage points of each other. I think if you reduce the transcendent social impact and economic pulling power, then Federer and uh, Federer slips down. If you if you really boost the transcendence, then the three women rise to the top. I think what I would say is that however you tweak the criteria, if you don't have your greatest of all time being one of Federer, Djokovic or Serena Williams, or just possibly King, if you're willing to give a, a really high mark for transcendence, then there's something wrong with your system. Because for me, it has to be one of those three, possibly four. But um, yeah, I'd stand by that simply because I think the, the the weighting of my model, my algorithm was justified. Jill, do you want to go first or shall I? I was afraid you were going to come. I was afraid you were going to come to me. No. Um, so for me, it's very hard to not focus a lot on the social impact and how, who and what makes the sport better and better in the future. And for me, that has a lot to do with um, not just the numbers. I am sort of chunking Federer and all Djokovic into one number. <laughs> I know you don't want to hear that. But for me, um, I can't not put Billie Jean King at the top because I wouldn't have had the life and the career and the passion that I had being able to play the sport without her and the original nine. Um, so I have to put Billie Jean King and the original nine in that, in that big category because of how it's been impacted my life and women in general. Um, definitely Serena and how much she's impacted the game and transcended outside the sport, how she's helped so many young players be able to pick up a tennis racket and being willing to believe that they can, play a sport and do that for a living. And I agree with Chris Navratilova, 100% Federer Nadal Djokovic. 
don't ask me to pick one because (laughs) that's always going to be an ongoing debate, I think, till time ends. And I have to, one, one other name that Chris mentioned briefly was Arthur Ashe and how much he's had an impact. You hear Tiafo, Chris Eubanks talk about him all the time and how much they've impacted him throughout their lives. And I think the way Serena has impacted the younger African-American girls, I think Ash has done that. We've seen it over and over now. And the only black American to win a slam. The only black American man. Thank you. Black American man. Thank you. And how much he's been civil civil rights act movements and how much he's been involved in that. So to me, that has how much has been impact on the sport of tennis in general. I think that goes a long way and how much it inspires these younger generation to pick up a tennis racket and to believe that they can play. I asked Jill for a top five. She gave us a top 12 (laughs) and she's a born politician. I mean, you're wasted on commentary. I don't know what you're doing in commentary. You need to work your way into politics. Um, I I also actually, for for what it's worth, just really quickly to finish my top five. um, I also went... On more on the on the social side of things, albeit I, I I also do kind of take note of the numbers clearly, and for that reason, actually for the numbers and the kind of social impact side of things, I went for Serena Top. Um, I just think she she redefined the game. I think she did a career Golden Slam in singles and doubles. I think the whole doubles thing in the modern era is underrated and underestimated. I think to win fourteen Grand Slams doubles, in addition to the twenty three singles titles, another 10 finals that she lost at Grand Slam level singles. Um, She's the highest earning female athlete of of all time. She made some significant comebacks from injury and as I said before from pregnant, from from childbirth. She's also done more for diversity in in certainly the women's game, if not in the whole of tennis than, than anyone else. So I went for Serena at the top. Then I went for Novak because of the numbers and because of his dominance over I think arguably Federer and Nadal at certain times on certain surfaces that they were supposed to be better than him on. Uh, then I've gone Federer, then I've got Borg, and then I've gone Nadal. But pff, it's all you know. You can you can I think you can make an argument for yeah. But anyway, no serving volleyer. Well, no. I mean, of all that, I think probably who's closest to being a serve volleyer there? Probably. Navratilova. Navratilova, I didn't have in my top five. Yeah, I know. I know. Um, Shocking. Uh, Sampras was a servant volleyer. Sampras was a serve volleyer. Yeah. One of one of the last. McEnroe. McEnroe is actually, you know, if we talk about transcendence, McEnroe should score high. McEnroe's numbers are just quite low. That's the only problem. If you're going by numerical criteria, um, and not really giving doubles much. McEnroe doesn't score, but the way he transcended, the way people wanted to come to tennis. And and, and another factor that I, I, I mentioned in the paper, but just in passing, is who do kids want to imitate? When kids see tennis on the television and then grab a racket and go into the road and hit a ball, this is a, I'm going to be McEnroe. I'm going to be Borg. I'm going to be Sampras. I'm going to be Agassi. You know, who comes top in that lot? That's another debate. The greatest rivals of all time. Well, it's not just the rivals. It's who who actually inspires people to, I'm going to grab a racket because I want to be whoever. That that for me is a, is a part of it as well. And um, yeah. I also think we should just put a slight asterisk by this whole debate. And if 
Djokovic has gone on to win 30 Grand Slams in the next three years, we probably should revisit. But, you know, he's not done that yet. But yeah, the numbers could get quite staggering when it comes to, to Novak. Djokovic, well, there you have it. I, I think we've cracked it. That's two podcasts debating the greatest of all time to come up with our very own top fives. I'm not sure many people out there will consider this case closed, but that is just the nature of the beast, the nature of the goat. But hopefully we have given you all some decent food for thought anyway. Uh, our thanks to all the contributors to, to these two pods and to all of this year's podcasts. On behalf of Chris, Jill, myself, thanks also to our producer, Russell Dalbertanzen for all the, the words and all the wisdom that you um, that you have piled into the podcast this year. Um, thanks for listening to the ATP podcast from myself, Seb Lozier, Chris Bowers and Jill Krabus. Have a wonderful new year wherever you are. And as ever, enjoy the tennis. <laughs>